Welcome to this new episode of The Context. We will be talking about quantum computing. It's a huge subject and I don't know if we will be able to exhaust it in its various implications and contexts in this episode alone. There are many other parts that I will also mention at the end. And feel free to reach out and confirm that indeed you would like me to record other episodes that talk about these other parts. The world around us is something we recognize, interpret, and act on based on the phenomena that pertain to the scales that our human senses can usefully perceive. These scales uh, can span orders of magnitude, but not more than a few orders of magnitude. Outside of those, our intuitions and our instincts don't serve us well in order to understand how to create useful theories and how to act on those theories. But the world is still made up by phenomena that we can understand and confirm, even if they are different and radically so than not what we would expect otherwise. The quantum phenomena manifest themselves outside of these orders of magnitude at the smallest scales of the world. The way atoms and constituents of the atoms behave, the way that photons and electrons um, exert their, um, their energy in other systems, the way that molecules form, this is the realm uh, where quantum mechanics uh, rules. It is a hundred-year-old science in reality, the theoretical explanation of the photoelectric effect by Einstein in 1905 can be somewhat arbitrarily taken as the beginning of the modern science of quantum mechanics. Uh, there were many, many other physicists, of course, that worked uh, to put together uh, this branch of science. The phenomena that uh, I mentioned before that are counterintuitive include things like wave-particle duality, uh, where it is not reasonable to say that the electron is a wave or that the electron is a particle because the electron is kind of both. And we have experiments that prove this dual nature of the electron or actually of any other particle uh, and uh, as a consequence of uh, ourselves as we are made up of those uh, particles. Or the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that says that we cannot measure uh, at an arbitrary precision simultaneously the velocity vector and the position of an elementary particle, such as uh, the electron, 
but there are uh, minimal bounds uh, to this precision. And if we measure the velocity vector, we will know how fast and in what direction the electron is going, but we will not know where it is. On the other hand, if we measure very precisely where it is in a given moment in time, we will not be able to tell where it is going to end up in the subsequent moments in time. It is very important to understand that these behaviors and these principles are not due to uh, an insufficiently developed theoretical framework and that we just need to work for another 100 years or 200 years uh, in order to create a better version of quantum mechanics that will eliminate them. Actually, uh, there have been uh, experimental results confirming theoretical predictions that prove from an epistemological point of view that quantum mechanics is um, correct in its formulation regardless of how counterintuitive it is, regardless of how classical logic is unable to parse uh, how it works and its implications and how some of the leading figures and authorities in uh, uh, physics dislike uh, the fact that the universe is like this, including Einstein himself that was looking for hidden variables that could uh, explain away uh, this, uh, this uh, set of uh, phenomena, but he couldn't find them because they were not there, they are not there. And quantum uh, electrodynamics, for example, which is the relativistic uh, version of uh, quantum mechanics applied to the behavior of electrons at high speeds, is one of the most precise th scientific theories ever tested to 10 parts in a billion when you build a house or even a skyscraper, when you create a very, very precise um, instruments, for example, for um, brain surgery, the matching between your designs and the execution of those designs will never reach that kind of precision. We have nothing in this world that uh, is uh, as precisely executed as quantum electrodynamics is able uh, to make predictions that can be tested by experiments. So uh, quantum phenomena are pretty well understood and quantum mechanics is an incredibly successful set of theories matching uh, experiments. Uh, and the nature of applied science, which is engineering, is such that it is, in, in this case, uh, we have observed it can take some time before um, what we understand, what we analyze, is, is applied in everyday devices. How hard uh, something is 
um, of course, is one reason why uh, this application can be delayed, but the opposite is also true. And uh, especially uh, in uh, uh, the design of electronic circuits, we were able to achieve incredible improvements by shrinking the size of our circuits and we were allowed to keep ignoring, for the most part, quantum effects. Uh, the people who design the circuits and the software that helps them design these circuits don't take into account the behavior on the atomic scale of elementary particles, such as the electrons that do the work of electronic circuits. They didn't take into account this, except at the foundries uh, where uh, people had to turn the designs into um, the effective physical instantiation and where the chemical properties and the etching and the wavelengths uh, of the uh, light that uh, masking uh, uh, the parts uh, or hitting the parts of the circuits that are not masked uh, um, allows the etching of, of the circuits. So the foundries were already um, making certain adjustments that were needed because of the quantum phenomena. But at today's um, generations of uh, electronic circuits, which have feature sizes of seven nanometers. And the next couple of generations will bring us to five and then three nanometers. These quantum effects uh, will be harder and harder to ignore. And uh, the design of classical computers will have to be made with updated processes and updated software and updated thinking that actually uh, starts to incorporate quantum behavior of electrons and, and circuits rather than ignoring them uh, as it was possible until today. In parallel to this, where people only take into account what happens in the quantum realm only when they are forced to, for the past 40, 50 years, uh, there has been an initially theoretical and then for the past uh, 20 years and a little more practical uh, approach to build from the bottom up computers that take advantage directly of quantum phenomena. In particular, of two of these phenomena called superposition and entanglement. Superposition means that uh, the parameters that we are um, measuring in a quantum system give out a particular value, but the system itself is able to hold a very large number of values of these parameters. Entanglement means that the ability to 
combine and hold the values for the parameters that we need of a system of multiple elementary particles in a quantum system extend to the entire system under certain conditions. And if we take together superposition and entanglement, and rather than being frightened by them and trying to hide them under the carpet, pretending that they don't exist, and hoping and crossing our fingers that uh, our circuits and, and tools are not going to have to take them into account, rather than doing that, if we say, wow, this is incredible, how can we take advantage of a new way of uh, thinking about computers that can leverage this, then we have a truly jolting technology in our hands. If you watched a previous episode of The Context entitled Jolting Technologies, you know that uh, I refer with this term to those technologies that not, don't merely accelerate, but whose acceleration increases in time. The jolt is the first derivative of acceleration. It is an increasing rate of acceleration. And the reason why quantum technologies and quantum computing natively employing superposition and entanglement are jolting technologies is because they are super exponential. They take advantage of our ability to design circuits that is increasing exponentially and at any given number of components, they are exponentially faster than not traditional computers that do not combine exponentially the uh, individual components where the programs that are executed uh, take advantage of a linear increase at the increase of the number of components. So quantum technology is an inherently jolting technology. Quantum computing promises to soundly beat that kind of breathtaking improvement in power of our computers that we have come uh, to expect uh, over the course of the past decades in our mainframes, workstations, personal computers, mobile phones, Internet of Things, sensor nodes, and quantum computers are going to go beyond this. But they are extremely delicate beasts, at least as we know them today. To um, keep a quantum computer uh, with current architectures holding its superposition and entanglement, uh, one of the particular approaches is to make these circuits superconducting, where uh, the resistance of um, conductors disappears and where the electrons can interact uh, in the circuits much better and their interactions can be held in their desired quantum states 
for longer periods of time. Superconductors are available in many different types and, and many different uh, features, but the common characteristic is that they require extremely cold temperatures. How cold? Some of you may know that uh, temperature uh, is statistically represented as the vibration uh, of uh, atoms. And from that, it is uh, easy to understand that the decrease of temperature is the slowing down of this vibration. And as you project the slowing down of the statistical vibration of atoms, you understand that there is a minimum temperature below which it is not possible to go. That is called absolute zero. Actually, you cannot even touch absolute zero because you can only go ever close to it. And then when you start measuring the measurement itself, warms up the thing that you are measuring. So absolute zero is a point that you never touch, but you get always ever closer to it. In the universe, in intergalactic space, there is also a statistical measure of temperature. We call it the background radiation of the universe, and it is um, about three degrees above the absolute zero, three degrees Kelvin. Absolute zero in the Celsius scale is minus 273.16 degrees. Uh, the step of Kelvin and Celsius is the same. So from the freezing temperature of water, you go down below zero to 273.16. That would be absolute zero. And the temperature of the universe today is three degrees above that. The three degrees of temperature of the universe uh, is the consequence of the cooling down of the universe as it expanded after the Big Bang. So 13 0.8 billion years after the Big Bang, um, the universe reached this temperature. How cold need do the superconducting devices need to be in quantum computers in order to function? 10 degrees Kelvin, 5 degrees Kelvin, 3 degrees Kelvin, they need to be 10, one ten thousandths of a degree. These are temperatures that are not present in any place in the universe. Nature and all the phenomena that nature produced did not find a way to generate these kinds of cold temperatures. This is the reason why the coldest places in the universe that we are today producing are needed to maintain these delicate 
structures of quantum computing devices so that their superconductor features can allow the components to exhibit the superposition and entanglement that we need in order to make use of them. The first um, supercomputer uh, that uh, uh, was announced outside of academia in an industrial setting where you could put uh, a few million dollars down and buy one um, was in 2007 by D-Wave Computers, a Canadian company. I was there at this uh, presentation that was very exciting, very emotional, and also very controversial because D-Wave um, beat everybody and announced uh, the availability of uh, their computer. But uh, a, a lot of the um, traditional participants uh, who had a, a, a research program for the next uh, 30 years were extremely critical and extremely skeptical of their announcement. Uh, the best was that uh, D-Wave uh, were mistaken. The worst was D-Wave uh, was a fraud. Um, I always felt that the proof was in the pudding. Uh, it was certainly uh, not for others to uh, accuse D-Wave of uh, being a fraud. I didn't feel having uh, personally come to know Jordi Rose, the founder, that he would uh, expand the energy, the intellectual talent and the passion that he did in, in building his company, uh, there would be easier ways to, to scam. Uh, but it was for D-Wave to prove that indeed uh, their computer was a better solution to problems than not uh, what traditional computers could do. I used the D-Wave uh, computer first in 2010 uh, when together with uh, Alex Lightman I organized the H-Plus uh, Summit at uh, Harvard University and uh, the optimization of the schedule of 50 speakers over the course of two days uh, with dozens of different constraints certainly didn't require a quantum computer but it was a very fun exercise that Jordi uh, very kindly and happily sent over to his team, who then came back uh, with how the various uh, speaker slots uh, should be assigned in order to satisfy all those constraints. These kinds of optimization problems are especially uh, adapt for the kind of computer that uh, D-Wave uh, built then and keeps building. Um, their architecture is uh, called quantum annealing and uh, the optimization of systems of uh, linear equations and constraints uh, is uh, what these computers are best for. In uh, 2012, the uh, concept of quantum supremacy uh, was formulated and quantum supremacy means that for every practical purpose 
the problem that you are trying to solve with a classical computer uh, is not going to be solved. It takes too much time, but that a quantum computer will be happily able to do that. And quantum supremacy is the industry's uh, benchmark to confirm that they um, have made the kind of breakthroughs for practical applications of quantum computers that are going to then make them desirable to be produced and sold and owned and managed. Already in 2015, the Google-NASA joint venture, the Quantum AI Lab, published uh, some astonishing results where using a D-Wave computer for certain types of optimization problems, they achieved a hundred million fold speed up compared to uh, the same problem being run on traditional classical computers. And in 2019, they are expected to officially announce uh, to have achieved quantum supremacy on a different type of uh, quantum computer made of uh, 53 qubits, the units of uh, quantum computing. And this computer um, at the announcement is expected uh, to, uh, that, that we will learn to have achieved a trillion-fold, a uh, thousand-billion-fold speed-up compared to a classical computer working on the same type of problem. Now, whether we are talking about uh, the toy problem of uh, my optimization of conference uh, speakers, or we are talking about uh, the uh, two problems that uh, Google in 2015 and in 2019 uh, threw at uh, their quantum computers, we are still talking about uh, uses that are, are specially designed for the quantum computer to be better at. And the question is legitimate. What are going to be large, extremely useful classes of problems that quantum computers will be used for natively. These are not going to be compiling census data like uh, with mainframe computers. It is not going to be for writing a novel or emailing or web browsing like we are using uh, our personal computers for. They are not going to be for playing like a games console or video chatting or photo sharing um, or navigating on a map like we are doing on our mobile phones for sure. So we have to definitely uh, do kind of an iterative search to make sure that we find those problems that these computers are, are, are good for. We can start thinking about them. We can start trying to understand what they are going to be. Um, and a first target, very, very naturally, 
is a class of problems that are themselves naturally, natively problems involving quantum mechanics. For example, simulating quantum systems in material science, such as high temperature superconductors, so that quantum computers designing better materials for com quantum computers can achieve better quantum computers in the, in the future. In chemistry, for molecule design, or in biology, with protein folding, uh, designing better antibiotics or better um, living systems of some kind that uh, uh, we haven't been able to dream about because of the lack of the tools uh, that we had around. And certainly many, many more. Jordi Rose, uh, the founder of uh, D-Wave, uh, is known for stating that software itself is what I would call a jolting technology. Uh, Jordi says that if given the choice whether to use current algorithms on a computer from 30 years ago, let's say an Apple II, or to use the algorithms from 30 years ago on the fastest computer today, he would pick the first. Software is evolving faster. Software is becoming more powerful than not. Even hardware with its exponential increase uh, thanks to Moore's law. But developing software for quantum computers requires a completely different mindset a completely different set of tools. We don't have uh, uh, quantum software code editors. We don't have quantum software programming languages. We don't have quantum software debuggers uh, or testing suites, uh, uh, best practices. And very, very few people learn how to program quantum computers. There are some. For example, there is a Canadian company called OneQubit uh, that specializes in developing quantum algorithms running on quantum computers. You don't need a quantum computer in order to develop quantum algorithms. A pencil and paper, a lot of passion and a lot of talent and a lot of patience are also enough. But today you can have a leapfrog experience because Google and Microsoft and IBM and others are offering free access to their platforms in order to experiment with quantum computers. So if you find this field exciting and uh, you believe that uh, you can be curious and persistent enough in order to learn uh, about it and then maybe contribute to its advancement, you can start today and you can start learning about it for free with incredibly powerful uh, platforms that are available online, just uh, a browser click again away. So today we spoke about quantum computing, but quantum technologies 
are a much broader subject. If you want future episodes of the context to cover them, let me know, and I will be very happy to talk about quantum communication, quantum storage, quantum encryption, both natively uh, as it can be implemented uh, through quantum communication, but also the opposite, post-quantum classical encryption, uh, the quest for encryption algorithms that cannot be broken by a quantum computer, and quantum artificial intelligence. What is it going to mean to aim to develop narrow and possibly artificial general intelligence on quantum computers. Thank you very much for following this episode of The Context. As always, uh, you are welcome to support The Context on Patreon for as little as $5 or less. You will help me and my team address the topics of our time and give you a reading of what is the context for understanding them and acting on them. Thank you.